Voices have a strong meaning. They share what the eyes cannot see. Voices echo, encourage, empower, and support. Welcome to the Listening to One Another to Grow Strong podcast series. We are inviting you to embark with us on a journey in the work and reflection of the Listening to One Another to Grow Strong program, or L2A for short. L2A is a strength-based, community-driven, and culturally adapted program for Indigenous families and youth. The program is rooted in the principle that family well-being is a cornerstone of individual and community wellness. The program originates out of a collaboration between First Nations communities in British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, and research teams based out of McGill University. In the delivery and research of LTOA, we are following the different stages of the implementation cycle to learn more about what works, how it works, and who it works for. This podcast series is based on exchanges with partners of the LTOA program and will help us learn more about the implementation cycle. We hope to foster community engagement and connection by listening to each other's stories, passions, and work around the L2A program. We believe this podcast can help us gain insight on how the program works on the ground, and it will allow us to learn from the different individuals involved in the program to grow stronger and inspire people around us. We are your hosts, Nicole, Kristen, and Caroline. Welcome to the third episode of the Listening to One Another podcast series. My name is Caroline Beck. I'll be your narrator and guide today. Come with me while we follow a discussion among the L2A core research and implementation team. As a newest member of the L2A team, I had the privilege of interviewing my colleagues and talk about different aspects of programming in the L2A project during the COVID-19 pandemic. We had quite a long conversation. So we decided to divide the episode in two parts. The first part focused on implementation during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the second part that you're listening to right now presents reflection on research, ethics, and positionality. I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Lawrence Kermier, a James McGill professor and director of the Division of Social and Transcultural Psychiatry at McGill University. Dr. Kermier is a principal investigator of the L2A project. Dr. Kermier presents here the state of the research in the L2A project and offers some reflection about programming. Well, I, I mean, it's important to say that the L2A program now is in a different stage of research than it was when it began, when we had research grants specifically to work on the implementation process. Uh, we're now really in a stage where what we're doing is less research than sort of quality assurance and program development. So um, we're really just trying to keep improving the program, to keep learning from each other what works, what doesn't work. I mean, that's the spirit of research always anyway, but we have more flexibility in some sense about what we're doing uh, in terms of understanding the process and trying to use our knowledge, use our 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 own uh, reflection on what we're doing to improve uh, the way that we're doing things. So that's the overarching, I just mentioned that first of all, because that's sort of the overall goal here now is, is what can we learn to improve what we're doing? What can we learn to make it more available to people? 
what are some of the barriers that we have to find ways around? What are some of the, the ingredients that really make things go well? That's, that's really what we're trying to do as a community. It's not really about me as a, a coordinator or director of certain things. It's not about the, the students or the uh, other people working on the project. It's really about the whole group of, of, of us, the whole community of people involved across the country in, in Indigenous communities and so on. Uh, thinking through uh, what works and, and what could be better. So that's kind of where we're coming from. Uh, how we can do that now, as I say, I mean, we have these methods of communication where we can talk to each other, where we can have conversations and encourage each other. We've often found in, in work in Indigenous communities, there's a very strong uh, recognition of the importance that communities uh, have uh, ownership and control uh, over their own knowledge, over their own approaches, that um, that research is not uh, first and foremost for other people, it's first and foremost for the community. If it can help other people, great. I think that's, we all live in a world where we're trying to help each other, so we want that to happen. But first of all, it has to make sense to the people who are directly involved. Uh, and <clears throat> many communities have notions of who holds certain kinds of knowledge. Uh, elders hold certain kinds of knowledge about traditions, about history, and so on. Um, people of different ages have knowledge about their own experience and, and, and people in different in segments of the community. And we want to be able to share that in ways that are respectful of uh, who's appropriate to hold that knowledge and who's appropriate to share that with, but also um, recognizing that the process of explaining and, and uh, talking together about things can sometimes deepen people's own understanding. So in most of the work we've done over the years with Indigenous communities, we've often tried to partner people, someone who is inside the community, who in a sense has very personal, very direct knowledge of th how things work and what's going on, and someone from outside the community who may or may not be Indigenous, it depends who's involved in a particular project, but who can ask certain questions that are maybe are a little bit naive, a little bit innocent, a little bit uh, like a beginner, like, hey, what's, what's that about? Tell me about that. And that kind of question, which people inside the community might not ask because it's obvious to them, becomes an important way for people to begin clarify, to clarify what's going on uh, and, and what's special about how things are being done and what can be learned about it. So that partnership of people who have inside knowledge, as it were, who know from their everyday life kind of how things work, or, uh, but may, may not always even know what they know because they sort of take it for granted. They just use it in their everyday life. It's not something they think of as knowledge that they could share with someone. But when someone comes along and says, oh, how, how come you do it? How come you do that here? Or what do you do over there? Those questions become interesting to both people and become the basis of a kind of conversation in which each of them learns something from the other and talking about it. And it's especially interesting, comes back to what we were talking about earlier about cross-community links. When it's an Indigenous person from another place who's part of the research and they say, oh, you know, we do it a bit differently over there, that becomes interesting to both people and it helps them to understand what is similar, even though it might be done differently, what's similar and what's different. And it's something we found in the program that there's certain values, things like respect, things like um, uh, understanding one's own uh, roots and one's own tradition, uh, things like the importance of family and connection and so on, that are, are probably universal in the sense that every human being everywhere uh, understands these things, understands the value of these things. 
But the actual shape that they take, the actual way that people live them out differs in different places. And people can really learn from that and, and uh, enjoy that and, and enrich their own understanding. Uh, so even when people sometimes feel like, well, we already know this, it's not research. We, we, you know, we already know what this is. We don't need to you know, make it a thing. Uh, having that conversation, the inside outside sort of conversation of getting to know each other uh, really sometimes leads people to reflect in different ways and, and become aware really of the richness of what they have and of ways in which they could strengthen it further, of ways in which they could uh, they could use it creatively. So that's kind of the pers the broad perspective that, that, that we, we try to use and that we approach in terms of everyone who's involved, that it's research in the end is about uh, well, it comes from research. So you're searching again, you're looking again, you're trying to see if you can see something a little bit new and what's going on. Uh, to do that, you need to be exposed to things that are different or things that are novel or ask, ask uh, a new question in some ways. And that helps you see a new facet of things that are going on. So that, that's the spirit of it. And um, yeah, and I think that, that that also clarifies why everybody who gets involved, since we all have different backgrounds, we all have different experiences, uh, everybody who gets involved has something to contribute simply because they're gonna offer a new perspective. They're gonna see things from a little bit different point of view, and that's gonna raise interesting questions for everybody to think about and talk about. On to the team now. We started off discussing a recent presentation Dr. Nicole de Seuza did at the Réseau Québécois sur le suicide, les troubles de l'humeur et les troubles associés. This led us to talk about research in the LTA program, about relational ethics, positionality, and the importance of reflecting on all of this, especially when working with Indigenous community partners during the COVID-19 pandemic. So at the meeting, um, I represented our team in talking about our recent work on cultural safety. And this work um, stemmed out of a meeting we, we had in 2019, where our partners, our community partners came together in Winnipeg to discuss the importance of um, instilling a culturally safe space, especially in implementation research and in program implementation. So, you know, we've we've heard a lot about this term cultural safety and it's used a lot in, in work within indigenous communities and in communities in general. And so when we talk about cultural safety, um, it can take on very distinct elements of what that could look like, you know, cultural safety in practice, in, in clinical practice, in community practice, and then cultural safety in research. And so for us, we were trying to map out what does cultural safety in research look like for the, for the program? And what are tenants of it that we must take into account before we even can engage in, in programming and research. So um, the paper was a reflection of that meeting. We spoke about the importance of um, certain characteristics of forming relationships that allow trust to be built, um, authenticity, vulnerability, um, being open about our intentions. Um, you know, these are some precursors that allow the research relationship to be built. We also spoke about the importance of space itself, um, where you where you do research actually 
changes what you find in terms of knowledge. And so you really need to think about, okay, well, if the program is going to be implemented in a community, what are some safe spaces in which people can come together, share a meal and engage in the programming? And then we spoke about culture as uh, element in which um, people have different relationships too. And so uh, trying to move away from this idea of a pan-Indigenous way of doing things. Communities get to decide what approaches they want to use within their communities in working. And so these are all elements that are very important to consider, especially in implementation research. And um, this, is, this work has come together over multiple different conversations and meetings over the years. Um, and we continue to develop a framework for thinking through this. So especially now, one of the most important elements is, you know, as things have moved online and even some of our research activities have moved online, we're no longer in communities doing circles, um, talking circles or focus groups. Um, a lot of our activities are on Zoom or on the phone, um, interviews and focus groups. What does cultural safety look like in a digital space? And these are some of the questions our team are currently working through and understanding. Like, how do we carve out a culturally safe space in doing this work now online? So this is, yeah, basically the direction of our current research, trying to map out the tenets of this. It makes a lot of, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you very much for sharing, uh, for sharing all of this. And actually, what does it look like to talk about cultural safe, safety online during meetings and presenting the work that has been done in, within like, uh, L2A and with the work alongside L2A community partners? Um, and how does it, what, what does it look like to present this work to other, um, researchers and to other practitioners in Indigenous mental health. What does it look like to present this work? Mm -hmm. um, I think for us, at least as the central team, um, and I mean, we have been working in partnership with communities, but one of the biggest significant factors is that our team is, is non-Indigenous. And so what does it mean to come um, and bring different perspectives and lenses of knowledge together in having an understanding of what this work looks like on the ground, but also translates to for others who want to engage with it. Um, a lot of the times when we're talking about community mental health and community mental health in indigenous contexts, um, it cannot be taken for granted that there are specific people engaged in this work. Uh, it involves multidisciplinary teams. It involves people coming together from different um, cultural backgrounds. And it requires an immense amount of um, strength, uh, patience, perseverance to engage in. It's not easy work to engage mm -hmm. in because it also involves you coming into understanding and engaging in a process of going through your own personal decolonization. And I think in this program, especially as the central team of non-Indigenous uh, allies in this work, we have had to confront a lot of ways in which we, we do this work in terms of our processes. So if I am going to a conference 
and I'm presenting work of the LTOA program, um, what am I taking with me? Whose voices am I representing? How am I representing these voices? And these are all elements that we have to work through in, in making sure the, the work is represented to its best abilities because while our partners are very involved in co-producing knowledge in this program, um, not everyone is available to disseminate this knowledge to different avenues. And so it takes a, a group reflexive process. And you know, our weekly team meetings are a space in which we come together and reflect on that. And that's been one of the strengths of this program that even as we have moved and shifted online, we continue to hold a meeting space weekly. And I think that is one of the biggest components of this sort of participatory community engaged work to have a group reflexive process. This conversation on positionality was later reflected upon when we discussed training research assistants and continuing a relationship among the team members despite physical distancing. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll slide. I guess I can take a stab at this question. Um, okay, so basically, how do we maintain this? Well, before COVID, we had an office. Mind you, a windowless office. A windowless office. <laughs> that we would meet in. Um, and I would be able to see, you know, the research assistants such as Tristan, Michaela, and um, Mia, who was a former RA in the program, on a daily basis. And that really helped foster um, connection in our, in our team because we would physically be together. We would take lunches together, take walks together and see each other. Um, I think in shifting to an online platform, uh, we've tried to maintain the structure of the weekly meetings as a way of connecting. But I think we've also tried to, to I don't know, like allow new modes of working together to emerge. So for example, within the research of this team, there are many like Michaela and Tristan, you guys can speak for yourselves, but you're now master's students working on your own projects tied to the program or not. And so how do we, and you're, you too, Caro, as a, as a doctoral student in the program, um, you know, just fostering like a writing space. So we have writing meetings um, weekly that we meet online and we tend not to talk. We try hard not to talk. Stop um, looking at me. I know <laughs> I'm chatty. Okay. There are some of us who are chattier than others, but we really try and, uh, you know, foster uh, relationships, not just within the space of the research, because I think it's really hard to do this kind of work um, and only coming to the table with a set agenda at certain times, because this work is essentially very very personal, very relational, very organic. And so um, a lot of the aspects of how we learned about each other through lunchtime conversations, through walks to get coffee, um, need to emerge in different ways. And so one of the spaces is, you know, research space. Um, and yeah, I think that's my reflection on research. Michelle, I don't know if you have a reflection on anything else. Well, um you know, I have always sort of been working remotely. Um, 
sort of away from the central team in in Montreal. So, you know, that has always been um, a bit of a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, Nicole, as you had mentioned, you know, trying to maintain, you know, some structure um, and to have that open space where we can, you know, connect about work, but also taking some time to, you know, connect on like, you know, a more interpersonal um, uh, aspect where, you know, we start our meetings with just like an open time to chat to, you know, sort of, you know, connect and how's the week going, what's going on, what are some successes, you know, and also I think it's, you know, important to during this time to, yes, have structure, but, you know, also to know when, um, you can be flexible and, you know, when you can sort of shift things around and pivot to ensure that people's mental health is, is strong, that people are feeling well, that you can have a space that people can be transparent, that they can share, you know, that they may be going through a difficult time. You know, I think all of our, our mental wellness has been, has been tested over this time. So having, you know, a team that is there to support. And if you're comfortable to open up to say, hey, I need more time or, you know, I need, you know, a bit of space, you know, I think, you know, I think we've done a pretty good job at, at maintaining that and being, um, I guess, that balance of structure and flexibility, I think is really important. And I think that, um, you know, I think that that carries over that attitude, that mindset, um, carries over to how we approach uh, working with community partners. You know, during this time of COVID, everything, like at the start, everything sort of just came to a screeching halt, right? We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know how we would, long we would be in this, um, you know, programs on the ground were essentially paused, were, were shut down, you know, for those of uh, for those listeners who don't know what LTOA is about, you know, it's about creating a space where people are coming together to share and learn and listen. And it's very personal. It's very, and when I say personal, it's very much about bringing people together, bringing elders, bringing youth, bringing adults and caregivers together. Um, so we couldn't do that. Community partners couldn't do that, right? Um, we couldn't safely bring people together to have this space for LTOA. Um, so we've had to really maintain that mindset of, of being flexible during this time because communities were having to pivot on a very tight turn to ensure that the safety of their community members were at the top, were at the forefront, um, you know, ensuring people had access to good nutritious food, ensuring that there was healthcare available, you know, all of these things. So we saw a lot of our community partners adapt their roles within their community organizations. You know, if they were a regional coordinator for LTOA and were also, uh, you know, mental health care worker, like, they had to like ramp up that aspect of their mental health work because that's what communities were needing at the time. So there was very much that reflexivity on the ground as well. And we had to, we had to roll with that. We had to, mm -hmm. which we have to, you know, that's just part of this, of community-based work is, is meeting people where they're at. Um, so we've, we've very much had to, um, to do that. And we're quite honestly happy to do that. Um, and I think that that, um, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, 
maintain this community of practice throughout this time to ensure that there is a space for people to share, um, you know, how can the LTOA program assist during this time? And, you know, we've seen, um, you know, we've been able to create or still develop some some toolkits that can hopefully assist during this time of, of social distancing or physical distancing physical distancing, I should say, um, where, you know, youth and families can still access some of the valuable um, tools found within the LTOA program, but um, in a different way. So um, we've really tried to, you know, adapt as best as we can. But to be honest, we're still learning every day. We're learning something new, how to do something better, how to reflect on maybe some of our past practices. Um, so every day is a learning opportunity. So, yeah. And I was wondering really in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So what does research really look like without face-to-face -face direct interactions? And I think Tristan, you've been uh, the main person doing research here. So if you wanted to um, to contribute to this. So you've been a research assistant for over three years in the program now, and you've, you're actually, in addition to being a research assistant, you're also doing your master's thesis, working through the creation of an online activity for family and youth. And I was wondering if you wanted to uh, talk to us a bit more about this. Yeah, so it's not necessarily an online activity, but it's a remote activity. So when we're doing the call that uh, Michelle was referring to before, like with all, our, with all the, the partners from LTOA and talking to everybody from across Canada, we were kind of discussing new ways to kind of adapt LTOA to the times. Uh, there was a lot of energy behind getting things moving and of course COVID stopped all of that. So one thing first we spoke about was trying to do something over Zoom and having families meet over Zoom and having facilitator and elder over Zoom and maybe getting something working like that. But the barrier that came up first was lack of internet that is sustainable for a Zoom call. Zoom is a very demanding resource. So people are saying, you know, they do use Zoom calls for some meetings, but oftentimes uh, participants get cut out. And if you have, you know, tens of families on there it's going to be very hard to organize like everyone's getting cut out everyone's coming back in lots of interruptions like that it's not going to flow organically um and there's also the issue of you know does everyone have the right technology for it because like you know then they're gonna have to budget that in if they don't and you know figuring that out as well so the idea was not necessarily to use something that requires technology but then can be supplemented by it so we thought of there's an activity within the program called the Tree of Life activity, which basically encompasses all the teachings from LTOA. And Michelle, you can jump in if I miss something here. But it encompasses basically all the teaching from LTOA, and they basically see everything that comes out of it in a tree. So it's like from the roots, you know, you have stuff like culture, uh, trunk, it's your strengths. And then from that, you branch out to your individual skill sets and gifts. And it's mostly like basically you see yourself grow as over the course of the program as you grow your tree. And we thought, you know, we could expand this activity. I think it was Michelle and Michaela who thought about this. Like we could also expand this activity to include more elements from the LTOA programming. Like it doesn't just have to be a basic tree. Like we can include a lot of the um, exercises we had originally. So a lot of work was done then to kind of look on what exists. And you know, I've been involved as well as looking, working with Dr. Kermeyer to look at what other programs have done and kind of looking to update materials as well, because, you know, it is, New times, cyberbullying is very different right now. Um, the way we talk about drugs and refusal skills is very different right now. So, you know, updating some materials like that. And then 
talking to community partners about what they think of the materials, um, getting some feedback as well, and then kind of just seeing um, how it goes. Of course, you know, it's not as intensive as making a whole new program. A lot of the stuff comes from L2A. A lot of it is just kind of copy paste because a lot of things do translate well. It's just adapting some words and some activities to really make it fit. And yeah, it's just kind of growing it that way and talking to community partners about how they can envision this being developed and being implemented in the communities and what elements would be culturally adapted as well. That's very cool. That's, uh, this is a very exciting yeah. project. Um, well, I forgot to mention actually, and the idea of it being supplemented by online resources is that someone can scan a QR code and be taken to a website if they still want to learn more about something or they could talk on Zoom or whatever with a facilitator um, if technology permits and kind of get stuff that way. Um, if we wanted, we kind of talking about making videos of some of the activities just so people can get an idea of how they work. But you know, that's something that would have to be created in the future. That's not the top priority right now, but it could also then help supplement um, what is being done with the toolkit. Tristan later talks about conducting his master's research during the pandemic. Yeah, so as you know, we normally would conduct research by going into communities and normally for other reasons as well, but then like conducting research on the side. Uh, and a lot of that um, helps to build partnerships as well, because when you're in person, you could joke around, uh, make people feel more comfortable, laugh a bit and be a little more silly. Not everything's recorded during the in-betweens, so it's not, you don't have to be as professional, so to speak, or as stern. But um, the difficulty with conducting research over Zoom is that a lot of that is taken away. Um, you're basically just going in for that one hour to talk and then leave. It's a lot more awkwardness around it too. Um, we can't just put a consent form in front of someone and say, okay, do you have any questions? Sign it, let's go. You have to go through a process of oral consent, which can be a little awkward to conduct reading the statement of consent and making sure everyone understands and getting electronic consent as well. There's a lot more steps to that. And uh, yeah, the smaller interactions are also gone. There's more difficulty of knowing when someone's not done talking, like when you're interrupting them, talking over them. Um, but there are some easier things as well, like some people are easier to reach, like just for an hour to get in contact with. So that's been good. And, you know, Zoom does bring some easier to record features. I know in the past, uh, Nicole can speak to this as well. We've had recording machines that didn't record. Um, and that's oh, yeah. like such a pain to go through like a five hour conversation just not to record. So the fact that the actual device Zoom is recording stuff is a big help. But when it comes to building partnerships, that's been a big barrier because, you know, when you go into a community, you meet them for a few days, you talk to them, um, you develop a safe space that way. Um, I've been lucky enough to be in this program for a few years. I could talk to people I already had contact with. So someone like Aaron in BC or Katie and Caitlin in Nova Scotia. But just as an example, you know, it's like you've been talking to them and it's easier to do research when you know the person and you have this trusting relationship. But then when you're talking to new people, it could also be kind of awkward. If they don't know you, they don't know what you're about. It's harder for them to just pick up the phone and answer you. And then other things like Michelle said earlier, people are also very busy right now. So the community worker had a mental health um, part of their agenda. Now that's been taken on most of their agenda. It's harder to find time to talk. So those are some of the things. And 
Um, we've also had to redo our whole ethics protocol to really fit this in. So of course, you know, talking over um, in person, it's a pretty easy procedure to follow. But then when you're talking over Zoom, you have to reapply for ethics. Uh, that was like another little month and a bit to hear back and you know, make it over make it over Zoom, a premium version of Zoom to make sure everything is secure, all the networks are secure. And then, you know, going with the hospital says about all consent and everything. And I think con continuing to, um, to build a relationship is really uh, paramount if we uh, want to continue doing research in this space. Um. Dr. Conyer offers us some insight about doing research online and the difficulty in creating safe spaces. Well, when you're actually in a place, you have a very strong sense of the place. The danger with Zoom is what you have is a very strong sense of looking at a screen, looking at a rectangle on a screen, and it's like looking at TV or, you know, a movie or something, and you've just got this, it looks like there's a little bit of context, like I'm talking to you now and I can see a chair behind you and I can see your little platform for your cat behind you and you know, I can see a balcony out the window or whatever, but I don't really have a strong sense of your place, and, and the more different a place is, uh, you know, I can imagine somebody who's living in a place a little bit like mine, I can sort of imagine the details, but if I'm talking to somebody who's living in a very different place, they're living in the mountains or living by the water or whatever, I may not have a strong sense of what that's like. Uh, so that's one challenge, I think, and maybe what it speaks to, we haven't done very much of this, but I think people should carry around their cameras, you know, and we should be, we should go for walks together. Uh, you know, so if we're talking to somebody in some other place, they should just walk along and, and show us things uh, and tell us about them. And maybe we would have a, a sense of them in the process because people are not just what's inside them. They're also what, what are they in connection with? What are they in, in dialogue with in the world around them, in the environment? Uh, and that's definitely very important, you know, from Indigenous perspectives that people have a strong sense of that. Anybody who lives, you know, in, in a rural area close to the land or, or just has a value system that, that makes that, you know, in, in important and in the foreground in their thinking, uh, that sense of place is going to be very important. So you do get a strange sense of place on, on uh, Zoom. Uh, the far away seems near and the near seems far away. And, you know, it's all very different. And I think that's a new thing for human beings. Uh, it has an upside and a downside. Again, the upside is we can connect quickly with anybody anywhere to some degree. Um, but the downside is we don't get a strong sense of place. And I think place is very important for human beings in our experience. So I see that as a challenge. And, and the risk is, again, we, we just we, we, we think of the person just in terms of the conversation, just in terms of the face of the person we're looking at. Um, Having said that, uh, you know, some of my work in the past has been with people coming into the clinic to talk to me. So then I see them just in my place, you know, in my context. So it's already a small improvement to be talking to somebody who's sitting at home and talking. So that is, there's, you know, I, I don't want to paint it all, just, it's not all just a negative thing. We're already getting a little bit of a sense, okay, that's, you're coming from, a, you know, you're sitting in a different place, you're coming from a different place. So I think we have to be open to exploring that a little bit with people. It's interesting sometimes with Zoom that people will use the green screen effect to put a, like a fake background around them. And I think that exaggerates the problem we're just talking about because then there's no sense. Now they're, they look like they're standing on the top of a mountain or they're, they've got outer space behind them or some other weird background that these things allow you put. And those are fun. And, and I guess you're seeing the person's choices, their preferences, their, their playful 
you know, their aesthetic preferences when they choose a particular background. But what you're not seeing is the actual physical environment that they're inhabiting that, uh, you know, is a big part of who they are and how they're living and, and you know, how, even how they think because we, we think with the objects and the people and the, the environment around us. It's part of our imagination, part of our experience and so on. So I think that's something we have to be a little more systematic about um, and maybe, maybe be deliberate about it, maybe talk about it, maybe ask people to tell us about it. Uh, and, you know, you can move around if you're talking on a phone, video phone or on a computer or whatever, you can move the camera around a little bit and show people and maybe, maybe we should be doing more of that. <laughs> well, people might also not, there's all this joking about what's just off screen. People don't want to show you, oh, I've got a stack of boxes next to me or all the trash I haven't thrown out or, you know, or whatever. I'm wearing my pajamas instead of my, my regular clothes, you know. So there is all that kind of stuff going on that I think they made on, on some of the comedy programs on TV. They've made some jokes about that kind of stuff. So. Following the same theme Dr. Kermier laid out, the team reflected on trust and online research. And I guess another thing, like part of it is like when you build relationships and make a trusting space, it's reading body language is a big part of that. Knowing when other people are comfortable, just seeing someone's face isn't always enough. You know, are they fidgeting? Are they not comfortable in their seat? Do we need to take a break? Like that is also lost. Yeah. And if I were to add one thing about this idea of trust, especially how it comes into community-based participatory research, um, is that we can't take for granted that trust always exists, that even if we do have trust at the beginning of partnerships, because I mean, LTOA has been built over decades of partnerships, and we all have entered into this fold with relationships already in place that we have been folded into. But if we take for granted that because of this structure, trust is omnipresent, um, it really would, it would, uh, it wouldn't allow us to do the work we're doing because I think trust is something active. Um, you have to constantly work towards it to upkeep it, to uphold it. Um, and in working in this program, we've seen how uh, that comes into play. I mean, it's been a completely different landscape for online work. How do you build trust that may have existed before, um, but now you're trying to work towards maintaining it when you don't get to see each other, when you don't get to share personal conversations, when a lot of the time, because people are completely inundated in this online world and, um, you know, as much as we would love to sit on Zoom and talk about how is life going, a lot of times they're like, we have 20 minutes. How can we, like, what can we do on either side? Because we have so many of these calls now back to back. How do you foster these relationships? And it's slow. It requires um stepping out of your comfort zone it requires making yourself more vulnerable um to ensure that you are giving your authentic self to this work um and yeah i think it's a it's a hard ask it's a hard aspect to navigate especially in an online research world now i was gonna add something also about like you know, we can't sit here and just assume that everybody has internet access. We can't just like 
okay, the things shut down, everyone switched to online and it's gonna work. That doesn't make sense for many of the communities that we work with. Some people maybe only have access um, if they go to a specific area of town or like it, it's, it can be very dependent on location and, and where these communities are. And I think um, why we've needed, you know, from all levels, people to understand and be flexible to that um, and from ourselves is because not every context, not every community is in the same place. And just, I think a lot of people were like, okay, yeah, school switch over, work just switch to Zoom. Like we can all sit here and it'll be fine. Um, that is a really, that can be really unreasonable for, for a lot of the people that we work with. And um, so how do we create that trust? How do we create this space when you can't maybe even see each other? Um, is definitely like a, a question and something that we talk about almost like every week. And it's something that we are always piecing together and thinking through and even asking, um, you know, Altria partners what we could do as well, what would make things easier. To conclude this episode, I asked Dr. Kermio what the future holds for the Altria program. As you know, we have two other versions of the program that we've been working on uh, that are different stages of development. One is a short version that's oriented toward the school classroom. So it's just some components of LTUA that can be done in a, you know, a, a, a classroom. And that is interesting because hopefully it will expose more people to the idea of the program and so on but also because there are many kinds of classrooms. Uh, there are classrooms within indigenous communities where everybody's from the same community, but some of our partners are in urban settings where there may be classrooms that have mixture of people from different First Nations or non-indigenous uh, students in the same classroom. And I think it's a very interesting idea to try to find some version of this program that will work in that setting. So each person can be connecting to their own background to some degree, but also learning a bit about each other's backgrounds because that's the larger world that we're living in that's the larger world that young people are going to be living in and have to you know adapt to and i think that the idea that you can strike a balance between strengthening your own sense of where you come from and also you know being interested and curious and learning about all the diverse different groups in the world is a very positive thing for for the world for our society for living together and so on so you know we're at a certain moment right now when there's been a growing awareness of the the hardships associated with racism and discrimination, uh, you know, in our societies. And part of fixing that is really changing the larger society, changing the attitudes of other people. So actually this kind of work where you imagine talking about some of the issues that L2A looks at, not just within an indigenous community, but within the larger society could have a very beneficial effect in the long run. So I, I, I find that encouraging and important, that, that kind of work. And the other thing that we're doing, which is kind of an adaptation of LTOA, given that we can't be there to, you know, people can't necessarily be there physically to do the program uh, as, a, as a big group, is to make a self-guided version of the program that a young person and or their family can work on together in their home uh, in a certain way. And I think that's the long-term goal for L2A is to create all kinds of materials like this to put them out there, to make them easily available to people so that people can use them as they need, 
that they can they can further develop them or they can apply them as they are. We hope that there'll be multiple versions in the end that were adapted by different communities. So a new First Nations community or a new person coming to this stuff could find something uh, close to what they uh, what they need and, and maybe it won't need much adaptation or, or they'll see how to adapt it because they'll see different examples. So that's kind of the legacy we'd like to leave uh, so that the program in a sense stands on its own or it's there as, a, as tools, as, as resources, as inspiration uh, for people who want to do something in the area of this kind of um, uh, promoting health and well-being. This is the end of this two-part episode with the LTA team. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We would love to hear from our listeners. What does cultural safety look like in your organization? How do you conduct research online? I would like to shout out to Jeff Wells who composed the music of the podcast, especially for us. And I would also love to thank the LTA team for their support in this endeavor. Join us in this journey and stay tuned for new episodes soon. Don't forget to keep up to date with LTE News by checking out our website www.magill.ca slash mhp and following us on Facebook or Instagram. And lastly, don't forget to follow, like and share this third episode. See you soon!